I invite you to open the Word of God together with me. We have two readings this morning. The first reading comes from John chapter 13, the verses 31 through 38. John 13, the verses 31 to 38, this conversation took place before the crucifixion of our Lord, and the second reading took place after his resurrection. Now, these two are connected, and we'll see why. John 13, starting at verse 31, when he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am coming, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And that is what happened. So after his resurrection, the Lord appeared to his disciples again. And then he talked to Peter about this. This is John chapter 21. We will read up to and including verse 22. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Then he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. 
And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So far. Our text this morning is the verses 15 through 19 of the passage that we just read. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever been terribly disappointed in someone? Maybe you had a colleague who was responsible for a critical deadline at work. They didn't meet the deadline and the whole team gets blamed. Or maybe there was someone that you greatly admired and then you found out that she had not been telling you the truth. And you're terribly disappointed. You can probably think of your own examples. We've all been disappointed in other people from time to time. But the worst thing of all is to be disappointed in yourself. And certainly Peter could have related to that. Peter was the one who had boasted that he would never deny Jesus. And yet that was exactly what he did. He denied him not once but three times. And you can imagine his regret as he rushed out and wept bitterly once he realized what he had done. So when Jesus appears to his disciples on the shore of Lake Galilee, he has this outstanding issue that he needs to deal with. Now you might wonder, what does that have to do with us today? 
Well, in restoring Peter, Jesus shows his love for his sheep. He demonstrates his love for Peter as one of his sheep, but he also demonstrates his love for his flock overall because the love that he shows to Peter is the love that he shows to all of his sheep, the love that he shows through grace and forgiveness, and that grace is something that God extends to us all. The love that Peter has experienced is a love that that he in turn can also show to the sheep in his capacity as an office bearer going forward because office bearers are are to demonstrate Christ's love for the sheep. And that love then is the focus of our sermon as we consider our text this morning. In restoring Peter, the Lord demonstrates his love for his sheep and will pay attention to the means of restoration and the goal of restoration. So the big question underlying our text is, how do you deal with someone who has fallen as badly as Peter has? And the answer is, very gently. And Jesus does that. He is, in fact, gentle with all of his disciples, because all of them, in a way, had disowned him. They all needed to be restored, in a sense. They had all fled when Jesus was arrested. But Peter, Peter was a particularly egregious example of that. Yet Jesus indicates his grace to them by inviting them to a meal, and that in and of itself is already a sign of restored fellowship. Typically, you you wouldn't sit down with someone unless there was nothing standing between you in our culture, and especially in that culture. It means a lot to sit down with someone at a meal. To sit down at a table together means that you have communion and fellowship together. So before he says anything, Jesus begins with forgiveness and not judgment. He indicates his forgiveness towards them. But he still needs to clear this up with Peter. And so when they finish breakfast, he revisits Peter's sin. And he does it very subtly. In fact, he does not mention what happened at all. Now, it's, it's possible that he um, had dealt with that already previously. We know from two other places in Scripture that the Lord did meet with Peter separately after his resurrection. Luke 24, verse 34, and 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5, both indicate that he met with Peter after his resurrection. And it's possible that they talked about the details then and that Jesus forgave him. But uh, we don't know that. It's not spelled out for us. We're not privy to that conversation that was between Peter and Jesus. But the fact is that that there's still this outstanding matter of his conduct among the other disciples. And it's not that they didn't accept him. John 20, verse 21 and 22 indicates that he was with the disciples when Jesus appeared to them. So it wasn't that he'd been ejected from the group. He still has some type of a position of leadership, even in this passage here. He's the first one to suggest that they go fishing. He's the first one to jump out of the boat when they see Jesus. He's still, in a sense, at the front of the group. But there was this outstanding question. Now that Jesus has been raised from the dead, what are his plans with Peter? And how is the rest of the group supposed to relate to Peter? In that sense, he needed to be publicly reinstated. And the Lord wanted to make this known to the church for the benefit of the church. So after they've had breakfast, the Lord turns to Peter and he asks him, 
Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And the word these here refers to these people, these, these other disciples. He's reminding Peter of what Peter had said earlier. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And now Jesus is asking him, is that really true? Do you really love me more than these people? He is in a very subtle way bringing to mind his earlier words. But if you look at how he does this, he is not rubbing his face in it, so to speak. He's not saying to Peter, well, you didn't love me. He's not making any statement. He's asking him a question. Do you love me? Now, what's, what's the point of that? Well, by putting it in this way, he's highlighting the difference between intent and actions. He's highlighting the difference between what we want to do and what we end up doing. And that's certainly relevant to us today. We live in a world which values intent more than actions in many ways. And we do the same thing, don't we? Isn't it true that we often excuse sin in ourselves and in others by saying, well, I didn't mean it that way, or he didn't mean it that way? And there are many, many movies that make that same point. In fact, in popular culture and, and in movies as well, positive intent in and of itself is, is actually often depicted as something virtuous. The actions of the person are less relevant. It's their intent that matters. And that almost has a virtue of its own. It's actually really, a really dysfunctional, subtle message that gets sent through our culture. But here Jesus is drawing attention to the difference between these two things, between what Peter intended to do and between what he actually did. And he's showing Peter what Peter is really like. And this is instructive for us, not just for us as believers, but also for those of us who are office bearers. As an incoming office bearer, you can have all sorts of good intentions. But the reality is that we are sinners by nature, and that affects our work. We can have all kinds of good intentions, but in and of themselves, these good intentions are not able to transform other people. They are not even able to transform us. Peter discovered that the hard way. Our text indicates that Peter was grieved when Jesus asked him the same question the third time. It doesn't say why he was grieved. We can assume that he was grieved probably in part because the threefold question reminded him of his threefold betrayal, and that, that, that reminder is painful to him. But it's also clear that just saying that he loves the Lord is not enough. He has to show it as well, and Peter knows that his track record is not good. So he's, he's getting the message. He's not, if you look at how he responds, he's not comparing himself to others anymore. Did you see that? Did you notice that in verse 15? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter does not say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you more than these. He just says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know, he's not comparing himself anymore with um, his co-workers. He's not, he's not comparing himself to others. He's not depending on, the, on his own words anymore. But he can appeal to the words of Jesus. Because Jesus has the words of eternal life. Jesus knows his sheep. And so Peter is not going to depend on his self-perception anymore. He's not going to rely on his intentions 
He's not going to depend on his own words anymore. In a sense, he's stepping forward in faith at this point. He's not holding on to his own words anymore and his own self-perception. He's holding on completely to Jesus. He's leaving it all with Jesus, and that's what he should do. Because he's lapsed once. There's no point in saying anything about his intentions anymore. There's no point in taking his word for it a second time. So Peter, therefore, reaches out and he takes hold of Christ. And he says, you know that I love you. The love might be imperfect. It might be unreliable, but it is there. But that love itself is not enough to be saved. That's not reason enough even for Peter to be reinstated. Instead, Peter will need to live out of the grace that Jesus gives to him. And Jesus is giving that grace in this very moment by telling him to feed his sheep. This passage tells us something about the Lord's love. He knows everything, not just about Peter, but about us. Yet when we come to him in faith, we do not need to be afraid of him. We can lay open our hearts. We can lay open our lives to him. We can allow his word to access every recess of our heart, to confront every part of our being. In John's first letter, chapter 1, we read, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But then he goes on to say, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So true growth is impossible unless we fully repent. But if we fully repent, then we can also experience the Lord's complete forgiveness. And Jesus reminds Peter of his sin. He is at the very same time reminding him of forgiveness through this commission. Now there's one um, uh, sidebar that we should note. Uh, Jesus asks Peter the same question three times. And you may have read or heard before that there are two different words being used here in the original language. The first two times Jesus uses the same word, agapan, which means love. But the third time he uses philein, which is a different word. Now there can be a difference between these two words. Sometimes agapan indicates a higher form of love than philein, which points to brotherly love. And some commentators have interpreted this to say that, that since Peter only uses philein three times in his response, he doesn't dare to assert a higher form of love, the agapan type of love. And so Jesus, in a sense, he uses, Jesus uses agapan the first two times, but then the third time he goes down a level, so to speak, to philein, and he, he meets Peter where he's at. And he accepts what Peter has and is willing to work with it. Um, you may have heard that interpretation before. However, John, the writer, does actually not make that big of a distinction between these two words. He's not using them in that way. And proof for that is in the fact that in other places in his gospel, he uses both words interchangeably. It's therefore probably best not to read too much into these differences and just to see them as stylistic variations, which is why our English translations translate them all with the same word, love, because that's the point. So the point is not to, to try to pick up on subtle nuances between these words, 
because that's not John's intent. His intent is to show us how Jesus walks Peter through each of these denials, and in every case, he gives him a commission to feed his sheep. Now, there are minor variations in, in what he says each time regarding these sheep. The first time, he says, feed my lambs. The second time, he says, tend my sheep. And the third time, he, he pulls those two previous ones together. He says, feed my sheep. Now, that variation between sheep and lambs may allude to Isaiah 40, verse 11, which is what Jesus, um, which describes what Jesus would do when it came, when he came. Isaiah 40, verse 11 says, He, that is Jesus, will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead those that are with young. So Jesus is commissioning Peter as his under-shepherd. He's taking this man who denied him. He's restoring him to fellowship among his disciples. He's giving him a task to care and to reflect Christ to the people around him. Now, all of this may lead us to wonder, is it possible for fallen office bearers to be restored today? And if you look at this passage, the answer has to be yes. It is possible. From time to time, you hear of an office bearer who falls into some kind of sin. Sadly, there have been many examples over the years, especially in, these last, in the last decade or so, in, in sort of the broader under the broader umbrella of global Christianity. There are all sorts of high-profile figure, high figures in prominent churches all over the world who have been deposed for their sins. And the question becomes, can someone like that who falls from such a height be ever restored again to the office? The answer to that question has to depend to some extent on the situation. It is certain that a repentant sinner should always be restored to the congregation. But should a repentant office bearer, ex-office bearer, be restored to the office? Well, we should not doubt that his sins are forgiven if he sincerely repents. Forgiveness is available to all who turn to God in faith through the blood of Christ. But the sheep of God have been hurt. The sheep of God need to learn to trust this individual again. That can take a long time. And trust is not something that should just be given in that situation, trust is something that needs to be earned. To serve God's sheep is a great privilege. The church does not demonstrate the love of God for the sheep if it restores a fallen office bearer too quickly. And in some situations, it's better not to do it at all. You notice here that Peter was not the one who put himself forward. He waited for Jesus to call him again. Today, the call to office has been entrusted to the church. The church decides if an office bearer is to be restored, and if so, when it should happen. And the goal of restoration, then, is more than just to get an individual, an individual back to where he was before. It's more than that. And we'll pay attention to that in our second point, the goal of restoration. The first goal of restoration is to get Peter to depend on Jesus again, not as an office bearer, but simply as a believer. And you may have noticed something that happened in this passage. Jesus does not address him by the name Peter. Peter was, uh, in a sense, a, a kind of a nickname, a name that Jesus gave to him, and, and it means rock. 
And whatever else Peter was, he wasn't a rock. So now Jesus refers to him as Simon. That's the name that he had before Jesus called him. And he asks him, Simon, do you as an individual, do you love me? Love for the Lord is the most basic requirement for our walk of faith. That's really what it comes down to. So this is a question that each and every one of us needs to answer in our own lives because it is common to all believers. Do you love the Lord? Do you, brother, do you, sister, love the Lord? The Lord here is teaching Peter and and us that our entire life needs to be motivated by that love. An office bearer is simply a believer who loves the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and his neighbor as himself. He is a believer first, and an office bearer second. That is foundational. And this interaction with Peter also teaches us that loving the Lord is not enough. We are to also live in total dependence on him. Peter was in many ways a model office bearer. He was fiery, dedicated. He took initiative. But he was also self-assured, wasn't he? He didn't know his own limitations. He didn't understand his dependence on God. He didn't realize that he needed the cross. So the Lord had to confront him with the depth of failure and sin in his own heart. Only then could he learn to truly live in complete and absolute dependence on God, and only then could he be useful to God. And the Lord indicates to Peter that he had never really understood this before. Look at what he says to him in uh, verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. In other words, you acted on your own initiative. Your, your motivation came from within. You were self-guided. And that, that doesn't mean that Peter was an unbeliever. He was undoubtedly a devout Jew. But it does mean that he did not live in dependence on the Lord. And that is not how it should be. And the Lord indicates to him that it should not be that way anymore. It will not be that way anymore. And therefore, we can deduce it should not have been that way in the past either. Now, this is a warning for our youth. When you're young, you don't think too much about these things. You don't really live in dependence on the Lord. You have faith, for sure. Nobody doubts that. But you're in the driver's seat in your life. You go where you want to go, you do what you want to do, you do it when you want to do it. And sometimes you never outgrow that. Sometimes you find elderly people who are not that different from our youth. They're still in the driver's seat after all these years. They've never really completely learned to rely on the Lord. They say the right things, they do the right things. And they have faith. But in the end, They're in the driver's seat. Now, we should never be afraid to come to the end of ourselves. To have that pattern in our lives broken. For when we come to the end of ourselves, as Peter did, what do we find? Well, we find the grace of God, don't we? Someone might ask, well, wasn't God there before in the first half of life? Of course he was. And he was gentle 
with you as he, is gent- as he was gentle with Peter. His purpose is not to destroy his children, but to bring them to a deeper knowledge of themselves, just like he did with Peter. It's only through this deeper knowledge of the Lord that he can be truly strengthened to face what lies ahead. The Lord goes on to say to him, When you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John comments this was to show by what kind of death he, Peter, was to glorify God. Now this is metaphorical language, but it's certainly understood that stretching out your hands is a metaphorical reference to crucifixion, to being crucified. So Jesus is telling Peter that he will be crucified, and that's how he's going to die. And he did. He was crucified and died as a martyr during the reign of Nero. So God did give him the martyrdom, the gift of martyrdom in the end. Remember that he had said, I will lay down my life for you. God did give that to him as a gift. And he received it with joy, and he did not run away. He did lay down his life, but he did it on God's terms, not on his own. But even then, he is not immune to temptation. Even in this very moment of conversing with Jesus, Peter still gets sidetracked. He notices that his good friend John is following them. And John, of course, and Peter were very close. There's much evidence for that throughout, throughout Scripture, throughout the Gospels. And so he sees John following them, and he says, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus doesn't tell him. Instead, he responds, and he says, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. See, even here in this very personal moment with Jesus, Peter is still not thinking about himself enough. He's, not, he's still, in a sense, still working his way through this. It's, he's still a work in progress, even here. And Jesus, therefore, says to him that this is not his concern. He says you need to continue focusing on your own walk. And he will need to do this and continue dependence on God, as we do all. Because a Christian life is a marathon. It is not a sprint. It is not a brief moment of faithfulness followed by a a blaze of glory at the end. It is about steady, faithful consistency. And there's only one way to do that, and that is in daily dependence on the Lord. We noted at the beginning of this point that the first goal of restoration is to get Peter to learn to depend on Jesus again. The second goal of restoration is for him to learn to deal gently with other sheep because he, as an office bearer now, is going to have to do that. And he knows what it's supposed to look like because Jesus has modeled this for him. We noted earlier that there are possible allusions to Isaiah 40 verse 11 and Jesus' words to Peter. The Messiah depicted in that chapter is gentle with his sheep. And Peter, therefore, as... as, as um, a representative of this Messiah as his office bearer, as his under-shepherd, is meant to be gentle as well. He's no longer to put himself above others, no longer to deal harshly with them. And Peter got that message in the end. He wrote a letter. First, first letter of Peter, chapter 5, he says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, and listen to this, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, 
not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And now listen to this, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So he learned from what Jesus did to him, and he dealt accordingly with others. And he had that commission. He did not keep it to himself. He also passed it on to others. Elders today share in the same commission. They are fellow elders with Peter. They're called to be gentle with the sheep as well. So the flock then gets an office bearer who reflects the love of Christ because he received the love of Christ. That's the kind of care under which they thrive. Incidentally, there's no indication here. By now, this should be obvious. There's no indication that Peter was placed above the other disciples. The Roman Catholics, of course, use this passage and several others to justify the existence of their pope. But if you read this at face value, it's, it's really hard to justify that or to make that connection. He refers to himself as a fellow elder in his letter. He talks about not domineering over those in your charge because he was one of many who had received the love of Christ. Witness the love of Christ who demonstrates his love for his sheep in restoring Peter. He demonstrates his love to Peter. He demonstrates his love to his other sheep who are cared for by Peter and by his, successful co- his successive co-elders. And so he shows his love to us through this passage. As he dealt with Peter, he deals with us all. How kind he is and how gracious. He strengthens us in our walk of faith and calls us to a deeper life in his service. And whatever our calling, he demonstrates his love to us. For we are his sheep. In that love, we can continue into another week. Amen.